Advances in technology and art require a solid foundation of history in order to improve, progress and innovate. What happens when the history is tied up with copyright restrictions or only exists as expensive artefacts? With video games the highest earning entertainment products, can publishers be forgiven for protecting their investments by deciding what relics from the past we now get to discover? Or should those long-lost treasures be more accessible? I'm Chris Yates. Welcome to Think Digital Futures. Video games have advanced far beyond the early days of Frogger and Mario being billed as children's entertainment, and developers are now looking at ways that mechanics and ideas from video games can improve our lives. Techniques and elements of gaming can be designed to help make everyday tasks more enjoyable or can even be used to help change problematic behaviour. Even our communication through social media has been gamified. UK writer and comedian Charlie Brooker, the creator of the often terrifying science fiction program Black Mirror, has referred to Twitter as a video game, with users competing for the most retweets and the satisfying dings of interactions being the dopamine hit that keeps people playing. Most retweets wins. So our lives are becoming more gamified, and researchers and developers are expending considerable effort to try and integrate the things that make video games fun into situations that may be very difficult or unpleasant. Jamie Garcia, senior lecturer from the School of Computer Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, has spent a lot of time thinking about ways that video games can make people's lives easier and better. Before joining the staff at UTS, Garcia was already thinking about this potential as a PhD student. It was about using games to help older people to stay active, and we actually developed a balanced game to help them exercise and reduce the risk of falling. It was a PC game, but it used the Xbox Kinect. So that was this little camera developed by Microsoft back in 2011, and that little camera can see your whole body and can detect your motion, and we can use that to effectively see your posture, see what you do, and try and balance using that. Jamie now works at the Game Studio Research Lab at UTS, not just with game developers, but experts from other fields looking at ways to incorporate gaming and gamified elements into their own areas of interest. It's a community, really. It's not just a room. It's a, it's a small community, uh, and it's full of gamers and researchers and people doing research projects in, in video games, really, or anything to do with video games. So we've got about 20 PhD students, and I co-directed with my, my colleague, Dr. William Ruff. Uh, we've been running this for pretty much seven years now, and we also have associate investigators that help us with you know disciplines that we, we don't have expertise on, uh, for example, physiotherapy or midwifery, um, clinical psychology, that kind of stuff. This sort of approach to combining aspects of gaming to other disciplines and areas of education is a key focus of the Game Studio Research Lab. Uh, we think it's really important, and that's actually one of the reasons why we created a new subject for the Bachelor in Games Development at UTS. So the subject is called Serious Games and Gamification, and effectively what that means is we're going to teach our students how to make games that serve other purposes, not just entertainment. Uh, they can be games for teaching a language, or helping someone with rehab, or helping someone to change a annoying habit. Uh, and what, what we do is we use effectively the fun in, in the game to help them change those behaviors. And in the case of uh, health applications, that behavioral change we want to achieve is people adhering to therapy, for example, or, for example, uh, people actually 
putting time into studying maths or physics or a new language and that we can achieve that through fun and that's what games do we may already be using simple tools like this without really thinking about it think of the way a fitness tracking app rewards exercise with positive reinforcement or an app that congratulates you every day that you abstain from smoking cigarettes as an example there are different ways that tasks or activities can be gamified serious games is when you make a full game that has a um, objective sort of hidden in the game and as a consequence of playing the game you change the behavior or exercise or do whatever you want but also gamification is when you add game elements to a daily activity to make it more interesting so in this case with your friends and the apps uh, they might have some gamification elements that make the whole experience a bit more enjoyable and that's what makes them comply with with you know what they're trying to achieve so have these simple rewards and gamification of tasks to change our behavior actually been around longer than video games themselves? One of the easiest examples that you might see talking about gamification is those loyalty cards or getting coffee or buying things in the grocery shops. That makes you come back and you get excited because you get rewards. And that's just a simple element of gamification. Um, changes your behavior. It makes you come back to the store and keep buying stuff. So we know that video games are going to be a big part of our future as entertainment, of course, but also something covertly when we're not even really thinking about it. So if we want to think about the future of games, surely we should also have an eye cast to the past. In fact, the history of gaming is so important that Garcia opens his classes by discussing the games from his own past and reminiscing about the very first time his imagination was triggered by seeing games in action. So the first game I played with was, um, it was the old Atari 2600. So it all started with just a play date my mom organized with a friend. And I went to his friend's house and he was just looking at the TV and pushing things on this little controller. I mean, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I saw him pushing things, pushing that button and things were happening on the screen. And I thought, hang on, that's, that's new. I don't think I've seen this before. Um, that's kind of magic. You can't control what's on the screen. Nice. Um, so yeah, shortly after uh, I got, I asked for uh, a Nintendo for Christmas. And Santa was quite nice that year, so I got the Nintendo. Um, and yeah, I kind of lost my mind with that stuff, uh, in a good sense, of course. Uh, and I became a bit of a gamer since then. And I've been collecting game consoles and a couple things about that. Yeah. So do you still have your original Nintendo? I do. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, I actually fixed it this year, just a couple of months ago, because it was broken for a couple of decades. And I saved it and I kept it like a treasure. Uh, and then this this year, I kind of had the chance to fix it because, you know, I kind of developed some skills to fix it, a uh, bit of electronics and stuff. And this time I was brave enough to open it up and change the component that I thought was broken. And this kind of relates a little bit to the topic today. The anti-piracy chip was broken. And in order to bypass that, you just remove one pin from the chip. So Nintendo doesn't check if the cartridge you put in, it's uh, legit anymore. And that was the problem. They put a chip on the cartridge and on the console. So when you put the uh, cartridge in, they have to sort of check that each other is present. Uh, but the funny thing is that design had a bit of a flaw. So if you remove the chip or disable the chip effectively, you can just bypass it. Yeah, it should be decided the other way. If the chip isn't present, don't work. So that must have been very rewarding for you to be able to fix this thing that you've kept for a long time. And what was the first game you played? Uh, the old Mario. That's uh, probably my favorite game uh, for many reasons. That was the only game I had for a couple of years first. I got different games later, of course, but um, I don't know. It was just such a good game and 
that game still teaches teaches us a whole bunch of lessons on how to design a game, how to introduce mechanics to the player. Because you know we gotta keep in mind this game is from the eighties, mid eighties, and back in the day there was no much content you can put in those cartridges, which means there was no way for you to put a tutorial level where you teach the player how to do stuff. You needed to figure things out as you go. So you know those levels were designed with that mentality. As the player goes through the levels, uh, new stuff will be introduced and the challenge gets increased. And that's how you kind of keep the flow. That's how you keep the person uh, entertained and, and, and playing. After fixing his precious Nintendo, Jamie went looking for more games he could play on his beloved machine. Interestingly, it was much easier than he had imagined. To my surprise, they still sell games for it. Not brand new games, game, games from back in the day. And they kind of packaged in these, uh, you get like 200 games in one cartridge. Yep, that's kind of like the whole, my, my whole childhood in a little cartridge. Wow. So here's a question. Is it actually Nintendo doing that or are these being done from pirated ROMs? Okay, so this is when it might get a little dark. Uh, no, it wasn't Nintendo doing that. It, it was online. I just got it from one of those famous popular online stores and I bought, bought the cartridge and came with you know all these many games. Again, back in the 80s, well, this is 90s for me, uh, I, I played a lot of this stuff in the 90s and my friends had Nintendos as well. Uh, but this is when internet wasn't a thing and if you wanted to play a different game you can either buy it physically like get the cartridge or you can trade it with your friends so just you know swap them for a couple of weeks so they get to play with your games you get to play with the games they own and there was a whole bunch of games from my friends i loved but i didn't own so a lot of them came in that new cartridge uh, so i was really excited to see a whole bunch of games that for example i wasn't able to finish because you know i got them for only a couple of weeks but now they, I own them. I can play as much as I want. And plus, now I can go online and see uh, how to pass that little section of the level that I got stuck with. Because back in the day, you couldn't do that. Jamie continued to collect video game consoles and games and amassed a considerable collection on various consoles from all the major game developers. He does, however, have some regrets about selling some machines when he was upgrading to new consoles, meaning that many of the games he used to love and play were sold alongside. I kind of do, yeah, big fan of Nintendo because, you know, that's kids from the 90s grew up with this stuff and Nintendo was the biggest brand back in, in that decade. Um, but then at the end of the 90s, kind of beginning of the 2000s, uh, PlayStation, well, PlayStation is mid-90s, but, you know, Xbox, there was a whole bunch of uh, alternatives and they had really good offers. Uh, uh, but anyways, yeah, got a bit of a collection, got a original Nintendo. I have a PlayStation 2, a 3 and a 4. I've got a Nintendo Switch, Xbox 360. I used to have a Nintendo Wii and I sold it for 20 bucks, which I regret. I should have kept it. And I had Xbox 360, which I traded in to get the Xbox One. Again, I uh, regret that decision because it could have been part of my collection. Yeah. I guess you traded the games at the same time you've done that. So when you traded that machine, you kind of lost access to a lot of games, I suppose. Absolutely. And a whole bunch of games from the Xbox 360 are not compatible with the Xbox One. So keeping those games had no purpose. I just couldn't play them anymore. So I just gave it all away. And yeah, again, I shouldn't have done it. <laughs> so even for hardcore gaming enthusiasts and those who become developers themselves, trying to find some old games can be very difficult and in some cases impossible. But what if one of these old games contains an element or a concept which can be used to further the future of gaming, but it's been lost forever? 
Archiving collecting old video games has traditionally happened through enthusiasts and gamers extracting the code from the original video game and turning it into a computer file that can be shared and played on a program that emulates the original machine. The video game industry has been built on always looking forward to the next thing, with gameplay and graphics improving constantly, creating a cycle of new must-have consoles and games, replacing their predecessors. The machines are designed with the knowledge that they will be obsolete and the games along with them. The preservation of games that are no longer available commercially has been occurring since the early days of the internet, with the term abandonware being placed on games that have outlived their usefulness to the company that owns them. This has happened in a legal grey area. The games themselves actually still falling under copyright, but with the games being shared for free and no conceivable loss of income to the companies, abandonware or ROM sites have flourished. This all changed when Nintendo decided to file a lawsuit against one of the internet's most prolific ROM sharing sites, ROM Universe. The site's owner Matthew Storman initially fought the lawsuit, but in the end was ordered to pay Nintendo over $2 million US. So why are Nintendo deciding to go after these rogue file sharers after all these years? Is it because they themselves want to start preserving their own history? Um, I think it's it's an interesting phenomenon happening now, and it's effectively kids from the 90s now being our age and wanting to play those things again, but not having an original console and still having that you know, nostalgia element. So Nintendo is actually exploiting that nostalgia element to sell you stuff again. And th- for a couple of decades, they didn't really care about ROMs or you know, all these websites with you can, where you can download all these um, old games or classic games. Uh, but now they realized that there was a market opportunity because all these kids from the 90s are 30-something now, and they have the income to buy a Nintendo Classic. So they actually re-released the console, and it's a bit smaller, and it's got some improvements. And uh, yeah, effectively, they just put a whole bunch of games in it, and that's they put it on the package and sell it to you. So now it's valuable because people want to pay for it. People want to own these things again, all those uh, toys they had as kids, and Having these games online messes with that business model. Garcia welcomes Nintendo re-releasing these games in an official way. It's really appealing to get your hands on one of those devices because there's nothing better than playing on the original console, like playing on emulators on your computer. That You can actually pick the, the emulators to run the game even better, but it's not the same feeling like having that control and you actually have the muscle memory, how to press things and the reaction time of those consoles, it's probably a bit better to the emulators in most cases. Or you kind of get used to, to I don't know, things re- behaving in a certain way. And th- the console gives you that. The emulator doesn't give you that. And, you know, putting that on the big screen in your house, in the middle of the li- uh, living room, and showing off to your friends that you've got that thing. And the game, the actual controller looks identical to the game uh, from back in the 80s. Uh, the connector is a bit different because it's a new console and it's kind of compatible with the Switch as well, uh, some of the controllers. But uh, yeah, what they're trying to achieve is sell you that thing that you want to own again. And that as a product is really appealing. It's really appealing to not only enthusiasts, but also the casual gamers. And enthusiasts will probably go for the original thing and they, they wouldn't mind paying thousands for you know a pristine condition Nintendo. Uh, but this stuff you can just get in JB or one of those retail stores and it's a couple hundred bucks and not even that, like 50 something bucks. And yeah, you set it up and it works all fine. So conceivably, 
Once this wave of nostalgia passes for the original games that the kids of the 80s and 90s are interested in reliving, it's likely we will see those companies turn a blind eye on the sharing of ROMs once again. And these games will appear to be discovered in a less financially draining way for future generations of gamers. Having the knowledge of and access to these games is crucial for the development of future games. Limitations of the original technology led to innovations, creative thinking, and helped shape the fundamentals of the gaming experience we enjoy today. Uh, I think it's important for many reasons. Um, and I actually bring a whole bunch of old games in the early weeks of my classes just to get students to appreciate how the not only the industry, but the tech has evolved and how games started as a simple thing that you do on your TV. And now games are everywhere. And a lot of good lessons come from the old games, as I was saying before, like Mario. That game did not have the capacity or the space to put a tutorial level. The game design needed to be good enough for people to learn and master those skills before they can play a complicated uh, yeah a more challenging uh, task. So there's a lot of learning opportunities from those. Uh, for example, E.T., the worst game ever made. Again, same thing. You don't want people doing that because making games is much more expensive these days. So you need larger teams and they go for a bit longer. And, you know, different models of making games also have changed. And this is one of the learnings from, from the 80s. Uh, back in the day, they used to just release games every other week. They didn't really care about the quality because, you know, there was a the excitement of the moment uh, kind of pushed companies to release games, but there was no quality control on those games. And the market got, got flooded, uh, flooded with a whole bunch of games that there were, there weren't any good. Uh, but that gamble kind of paid off because back in those days, releasing five games and if one makes money, you kind of make a profit and making games was cheap. You, you only need needed two or three engineers to make it. These days, that has changed quite significantly. So making a whole game, like a proper game, uh, you have to spend millions on marketing. You have to, you have to have teams of 100 people, maybe. Uh, that game has to offer certain hours of entertainment. And yeah, you can't make the same mistakes from back in those days. So I see, a, I see it as a valuable thing just to teach lessons on how to do things and how, what things you should avoid in, in your game design or game development cycles. Yeah. So, with proper access to our video game history, can video games continue to improve us and our world? Yeah, I think games have huge potential. And I mean, this is a field that probably started, serious games as a research uh, field started probably decade, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, because people started noticing the potential of using games for uh, this kind of stuff, like doing all the more serious things in life. Uh, and games actually get you to use your brain, different components of your brain. So I'm not a neuropsychologist or anything like this, but um, we've learned a few things in doing previous studies and these different cognitive components or cognitive skills that can be trained by playing games, like uh, executive uh, memory or processing speed or uh, yeah, simple things like being able to solve problems, that all of that, you can transfer to real life. All those skills that you use in your games actually make a, a, a smarter person, uh, for example, in, in your job. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I see a lot of value in games and I see a lot of value in um, yeah, putting interesting mechanics that you can actually transfer or you can learn things that are transferable to your life, real life. 
Think Digital Futures is made possible thanks to the support of 2SER Radio and the University of Technology, Sydney, and heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is produced in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chris Yates. Thanks for listening. I am a semi-pro gamer. I float above the sea and land. I don't need a passport. Just an unlimited wireless plan.